the material that uh, we're in in chapter 2 of uh, 1 Peter, um, I kind of hope you remember a little bit of what we did last time. Uh, we were in the other room, the bo- larger boardroom, and I drew some things on the board. The old order of things with the temple, priest, sacrifices, and then the new order, a temple, priest, and sacrifices. And the new temple is is the church. It is you and it is I. And we are the royal priesthood. We do not need intermediaries anymore. And the sacrifices, Peter refers to them as spiritual sacrifices. It is daily offering ourselves to the Lord. <clears throat> Paul makes the same comment in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and into verse 2. So, it's just, if you don't have that quite firmly in your mind, some of the things that he's talking about don't make sense. But if you have that in your mind, the old order is crossed out because it's been fulfilled. The new order is what we're talking about here. Oh, hi, Ron. <clears throat> I didn't see you to my left. But, <laughs> so if I don't get eye contact with all of you, it's just I can't keep going like this. So it just uh, doesn't mean I'm ignoring you, but that is a little more difficult. So, He's right, he's right in the middle of that discussion. And um, we, we looked at uh, what Peter is doing with the cornerstone, the chief stone, the peak stone, and then in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Now that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse 4. Now again, I'm kind of jumping into the middle of it, but it, it, it gets us uh, ready, to, ready to dig in. Of whom is this verse speaking? Who is the stone of stumbling? Who is the rock of offense? Jesus. Jesus. And so it's, 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 it's interesting the progression that Peter is making here where he quotes at the beginning of this section, verse 6, quoting from Isaiah 28, that God is laying a cornerstone in Zion. And that's Jesus. And so honor, so the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that's been rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, the peak stone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Why does Peter bring that up here? Everything is so positive in the sense that this new temple, this new order of things, But he speaks of Jesus and says of him, God has elevated, God the Father has elevated him to this position of the cornerstone, the peak stone of the new temple. But don't forget, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why mention that? I'd like you to think about it. And if if you want to answer it, go for it. He knew that he was going to run into a tremendous amount of resistance from the established Jewish faith and the leaders, and this is really calling them out and yeah. telling them what he knew was going to happen. Yes. Um, is Jesus a stumbling stone? Is he a rock of offense? You know, one of the one of the things you see consistently through the New Testament. And I think I observe it today in 2017, is Jesus divides humanity. Jesus divides people. It's, it's hard to find people that are neutral about Jesus. 
they either like him as a great teacher or some great ethicist or so on, but you start pressing deeper and deeper into what Jesus is really claiming when you read the Gospels. God in the flesh, that his death is a substitutionary death, that his resurrection is paying the penalty of death and he conquers death. And all. Those are the things people don't want to talk about that. I talk about him as a nice man, a good teacher, but all of a sudden he is a rock of offense. He's a stumbling block for the Jews, and that's something that's quite uh, persistently developed throughout the, the New Testament. Jesus is a stumbling block. They stumble over him. They do not want to embrace the, the proposition that he is their Messiah. And so they stumble, and he's offensive. And Jesus remains that today in among humanity. He is just an offense to people. And so to make him acceptable, people just, you know, water him down to just a wonderful man, a nice teacher, a, a, a good ethicist. But I don't want to talk about those stuff being the Son of God and dying on the cross. Because those kinds of things are offensive. Because it gets to the heart of our fundamental problem. Which isn't social, economic, or political. It's religious. It's spiritual. It's our heart. And so Peter's just reminding, reminding his readers that even in this new order, remember that the one whom God, has, the Father, has elevated remains a stumbling block, a rock of offense to people. And then he adds uh, what I was hoping the Lord would have come back before I'd have to address this. They stumble because they disobey the word. The term for word there is logos, which is really kind of interesting that he chooses that particular. They stumble. They stumble over whom? Over Jesus, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. Why is that? Jesus threatens our personal sovereignty. Very much so. Why is that destined? Why is that predestined or preordained, if I'm understanding it right? I'm not sure. Okay, now what's the this? When you use the pronoun this, what is the this? What do you mean by the this? The, the fact that Jesus is a stumbling block, that he does threaten our, 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 our so, personal sovereignty, that, that's what the this is. Okay. Uh, to answer that, let me... First of all, take my jacket off because I'm getting very warm. But secondly, um, let me draw a couple of things on the board here in terms of this verse. He says, Peter uses, and he's going back to the... Andrew, it is all right I write on this, Absolutely. Right? As long as it's not permanent, Mark. Well, that's not that's <laughs> no. what she gave us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. I'm just going to move right over here. All right. Okay, so we, Peter is using using the term stumble, taking it back to that quote from from Psalm, uh, from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4, and preceding verse. Okay, they said, why did they stumble? Why did they stumble over Jesus? Why, why, to, why to them is Jesus such an offense? Well, they stumble, first of all, because they disobey. And what are they disobeying? They disobey the logos of God, the word of God. The word incarnate, Jesus, the word incarnate, but also the written word of God. So they disobey. Is that an act of the will? 
Now, if you, you have to yeah. follow me here or you're going to miss yeah. the point that Peter's making. Is that an act of the will? Sure. Is it intentional? Yeah. Did they understand willingly that they are disobeying what is clearly revealed? Yeah. The answer to all that is supposed to be yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, they, 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 they know the scriptures. They, they know that, yeah, they I mean, it disobedience. isn't out of ignorance. No. It is a disobedience a that is disobedience out of understanding. They understand what Jesus is claiming. They understand who Jesus is claiming to be. But there's a willful, conscious, intentional decision to reject that. Okay, but then Peter says, as they were destined to do. Now, let's do the railroad track. Because here you see it in this verse. This compatibility, compatibilism, which is throughout the New Testament. All right, the right-hand side of the railroad track is divine sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, okay? The left-hand side is the responsible freedom of the human being. Now look at that verse. And we just put it up here kind of like a diagram. You see both of them. Oh, they disobey the word of God. Which side of the railroad track is that? This. It is a willful, conscious exercise of responsible freedom. It's not done out of ignorance. And then he adds, as they were destined to do, that's the focus on God's sovereignty. It's that interplay between the sovereignty of God and the responsible freedom of the human being. Now, I don't know how, I mean, I've been studying this for 35 years, but I read a verse like this, I can't resolve the tension that a verse like this creates. Do you, do you understand that sentence? I can't resolve the tension that a verse like this creates. Because you read a verse like that, and you want to either camp on this side, or you want to camp on this side, but the verse doesn't allow you to do that. What the verse focuses on is the tension of both the sovereignty and providence of God mixed with the responsible free will actions of the human being. Fisher cut bait. <laughs> and so it's it's the same thing. We 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 I used this illustration I think a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and he says, tonight, one of you is going to betray me as they're eating the Passover meal, according to the scriptures. Which side of the track is that? Sovereignty of God. Part of the plan. So I called him, but woe to that man. It would be better if he were never born. Which side is that? It's the human responsibility side. Judas? Judas isn't a robot. The Jews who are rejecting Jesus, to whom Peter's referring, they're not robots. It's, it, it's just God said, as, as the whole plan is laid out, many, 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 many of my people will reject my son as the Messiah of Israel. It's, it's destined, it's determined. It's a little bit like when Isaiah was commissioned in the very beginning of the book of Isaiah. He's commissioned to be the prophet to Judah, and God says to him, I want you to go out and faithfully proclaim, do everything I tell you to tell you. And by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> nobody's going to obey you. Nobody's going to do what I'm, through you, I'm telling them to do. I don't know about you guys, but if the Lord would have commissioned me to do so, I want you to teach four Bible studies, and absolutely nobody's going to listen to anything you say. Nobody's going to do anything you want them to do. And I said, well, I think what I'll do, Lord, is I'll go and I'll work in the garden and I'll pick up a couple books and read them. I'm going to stop teaching these crazy people. 
it's this, you, you cannot, I don't care who it is, and people have tried to do it, to try to resolve the tension that a verse like this creates, theologically, the tension. You can't make it work. Because what people do is they either stress this at the expense of this, or they stress this at the expense of this. And the Bible says both of these are true. And that's very hard for us in our finite temporal mind to get, get, our, get our, our minds really around that. But to me, and I've thought about this for a long time, years, I, I really mean that. To me, I find great comfort in this, in this sense. This, compa- this is called compatibilism, but, but this compatibilism that, that God's sovereignty is real, but human responsible freedom is real, that gives comfort to me because it helps me realize something that's very true in the scriptures. We're not victims of fatalism. We're not robots. We're not automatons. It, it, it is, it, we are living and operating in a universe where we are responsible for the decisions we make, and yet God is superintending all of the affairs to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The Bible does not allow you to flee to the seeming safety. Well, then we're all robots, and in a fatalistic, we're caught in it. The Bible does not allow us to conclude that. But the Bible at the same time doesn't say that everything God does and every decision he makes is contingent on the decisions I make. You know what I mean by contingent? God's not a contingent God. God isn't sitting up there and saying, okay, Gabriel, we've got to be patient. We have to wait and see what Jim's going to do. And once I know what Jim Ackman's going to do, then I'll act. Now you have to start thinking about that, how absolutely absurd and ridiculous that is. So you and I are not... We do not live in a universe where fatalism rules, but we also don't live in a universe where randomness rules. Where things just happen. And there's a randomness to things. The Bible doesn't allow us to conclude that either. So to me, it's the, and I've, you know, I've studied this and studied this and studied this, came up with this railroad thing years ago. But to me, that, that is how the Bible presents it. And the Bible says to us, this side of eternity, learn to live with that tension. Because you will never get your answers completely satisfactorily answered. And that's why, to some extent, my, my pastor, lead pastor of my church, where I'm on staff, he says this a lot. You and I live our lives not based on explanations, but based on promises. Think about that. Do you, do you understand what he's saying? In other words, so often we, and that's just the nature, we, we seek that. We want explanations. I want answers. But so often the, the why questions of life, why did this happen? Or we sometimes say, why did God permit this to happen? Well, that, a lot of times we don't know the answer to that. Because you and I aren't infinite, we're not eternal. So God says, yeah, I mean, in, a, in effect, sometimes you'll understand it. I'll explain it to you. But sometimes I'm not. I'm not going to explain it to you. So what do we fall back on? The promises that God's made to us. We live by his promises, not by complete, full-orbed explanations of everything. To me, that is, that is, that is spot on. 
And it's the same way with a, a verse like this is just filled with so much tension. And we're saying, I don't want to live with that tension. But that's how the scripture present it. And this, this, this kind of tension is just, I see it everywhere in the scriptures. We're not victims of randomness, or also not tools in a fatalistic universe. We were responsible for every decision we make, but our God is superintending everything that occurs to accomplish his purpose. Follow me? That's, that's the language that I see in summary, in summary of a form, the language I see in the scriptures. And I find great comfort in that because I'm telling you, if I reach the conclusion that we are victims of randomness, where is their hope? Where is their purpose in that if we're just a victim of things just happening? Then our God's, uh, then our God's not in control. Then our God is not sovereign. Our God is contingent on circumstances. And that's a ludicrous proposition. Now, I got into some theology there. I hope I didn't lose you. Are you with me? Do you want to ask any question or push back? Or So your silence means understanding, huh? This is, this is God's will, and it's not for us to understand. In, in a complete, complete comprehensive way. And the promise is, yeah. 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 Jesus says before he goes back to the Father, "Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you." That's a promise. And so, something happens in our life, which which is hurtful or painful or catastrophic or traumatic. Does that mean what Jesus said to me wasn't true? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of your age, always with you. Is that tragic thing? Okay, he missed it. He was sleeping that time and something happened. You know, I'm, I'm making an absurd claim there. No. My God is still in control and things are happening that I can't completely understand. But the one thing I am taught over and over again in the scriptures is my God is superintending all the affairs of humanity to accomplish his purposes. And yet in superintending all of those affairs, people are acting responsibly. They're accountable for the decision to make. That's how the Bible presents it. And as I so unbiblically said, but that's kind of the bottom line, is live with the tension. You will never get it resolved this side of eternity. Yet in the very next verse, Verse 9 talks about them being the chosen people where the left hand rail isn't even mentioned and only the right hand rail is there. Exactly. So, what do we do with that? Well, it's just, Jim, it's, it's just he chooses, sometimes like what Paul does in the book of Romans, he chooses to totally emphasize one side of the railroad track. It isn't that he's ignoring the other side, responsible, free action of individuals. He's just saying, remember, God has this remarkable plan. And that remarkable plan involves words like election and predestination and chosen and things like that. But you still be responsible for every decision you make. One thing that helps me understand this, and I I, I'm uh, Jim's d- distilling. I know you are, and that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm thinking back to 
the nation of Israel being a chosen of all of the tribes, of all the people. Back to Abraham and Lot. Mm -hmm. right. Which was not, I mean, it was more of a, I mean, what was a collective decision? I'm choosing the tribe of Israel. Sure. So, I'm, as I'm thinking about the left hand side of that track, as I'm looking up there, is there a collective component to this as well? And then, or, I mean, I. Okay, I'm not sure a collective. Co well, I understand this word, but I'm not sure I'm understanding how you're using it. What do you mean by the collective component? Well, I mean an impersonal, just Abraham. group? He chose Abraham, but overall he chose the nation. All of his descendants and so on. Right, right, right. So, in some respects, that would be a collective. It would have to be a collective decision. I, I follow what you're saying. Now, now I get And I, that's right. And so that. We can then conclude, which is how the Old Testament presents it, that the children of Israel are the chosen people of God. Now, that's, that is the collective whole. It's a collective noun, the, cho the chosen people of God. But each one individually within that chosen nation, they individually have to make a decision of faith, either follow God or not. Just because they are a part of that doesn't mean they're automatically in so to speak. That's what Jesus Christ challenges as he's talking to the Pharisees. You are saying because you are the father, because Abraham is your father, you're automatically in. That's not right. I'm paraphrasing what Jesus says in chapter 8 of John. Don't assume that. Just because you're a Jew that you're automatically in. You still must individually make that decision. But you have the privilege of being part of that chosen nation. Uh, that is of Israel. So there is if I'm following you, Jim, it's, it's absolutely correct. There is a collective sense, but it does not ignore the individual person's responsibility within that collective sense to make that decision of faith. Yeah. Rob, I, we interrupted you. I'm sorry. Uh, Please go sorry, ahead. I, I, this is important stuff. And I, um, one of the things that, that I believe helps me see the connection and the, I can't remember the term you used, the the compatibility between the left hand and the right hand is you didn't just say freedom. You didn't say unfettered freedom. You said responsible freedom. I mean, responsibility implies accountability, accountability exactly. to someone. That's right. And I'm just thinking the choices, there are only three choices. There's accountability to yourself, accountability to someone else, or accountability to God. And I this makes it clear who that accountability is to. Right. And, and I, I appreciated your uh, affirmation of the, my use of the word responsible freedom. It isn't just freedom, it's autonomy. It's responsible freedom, implying correctly that you are accountable to someone. And the way the Bible is presenting it is ultimately your accountability is to God. Now, all the institution God creates and so on, there's accountability there. But in terms of how he's presenting it, your accountability is to God. That's right. So with all that said, and um, I knew it was going to take a while, so it's taken about 20, 23 or 24 minutes. But the end of verse 8, the only way to approach it, it seems to me, in a satisfactory way, not necessarily resolving our tension, but is this way. Where the, Peter is presenting both both of these dimensions of how God runs His universe, and see that's 
that's one of those fun, I shouldn't maybe say fun, but that's one of those intriguing things that you see, especially in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, like Job and others, where the author of these books challenges God and says, you know, you are, in effect, you are being unjust and unfair in the way you're doing this, God. And if you remember it, Job, who's near the end of the book, is getting very defensive and very self-justifying, understandably so. And remember how God deals with that? He says to Job, sit down. Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you? And he cites these animals he's creates in the Leviathan. And, and what's God doing there with Job? He's just saying, Job, I'm the creator and sovereign I did not ask your counsel when I did this. And in effect, he's saying, how dare you charge me with being unjust? Is it understandable that we sometimes hurl accusations of God as you're being unfair or unjust? Yeah, it's, it's going to be understandable. But ultimately, we have to fall back that God is perfect in all of his attributes. He never does anything that's unfair or unjust or unrighteous. Jim, keep thinking. I was just thinking about Job in the midst of all of his questions. Yeah. He falls back. I, I, I don't have any other conclusion to reach. I still trust him. Because that's one of the things, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but that's one of the things Tim Keller does in his new book, uh, Making Sense of God. You, you ultimately have to keep coming back to who God is, what he's claiming, and what his plans are. And ultimately, you have to. I'm either going to choose to trust him, or I'm not. And you know, because without that, we we end up, which I find so unsatisfactory. Yet so many very, very, very bright people believe it that we really live in a random universe. You know what I mean? That things just happen. They're cosmic accidents and cosmic chances. I thought, to me, that's an absolutely horrible way to live. But the Bible is just, the Bible keeps screaming at us, you can't make that choice. That is not how you're supposed to conclude things. And so that's what Peter's trying to do here. So let's transition to verse 9 then, okay? Now let me read, let me read verse 9 and 10 together, and then we'll come back and take it apart. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then a that clause, a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what's Peter doing here? Because now, now you really must keep this in mind. When Peter is writing verse 9, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has been completed. The ascension of Jesus back to the Father has been completed. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the sign of the new covenant, has been inaugurated. 
You with me? Has. All of this has occurred. So when he uses chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, is he referring to Israel? No. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is the church. This is the new order. This is the whole new order of things. And in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery, and the mystery of the church, the mystery of the church in this context is that Jew and Gentile, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, are together in this new organization, the church. And so, what Peter is doing here in, in these phrases that resonate from the Old Testament, he uses these phrases that come from the Old Testament and apply them to the new order. Because as we said last time, in the new order, there's still a temple, but that temple is you and it is I. There's still a priesthood, and it is you and it is I. We are the priesthood of God. And sacrifices are still a part of it, but they're spiritual sacrifices. So what Peter is doing, he's now taking this to another level, and he's saying, in this new order, there's still a chosen race. Who is it? It's those who put their faith in Christ. It brings the whole idea of election and all that, but he's saying they're still chosen. And is there still a priesthood? Yeah, there's a royal priesthood. But you notice a royal priesthood. Because the, the adjective royal, that brings to mind the king. That brings to mind Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And remember we studied Hebrews a couple years ago? The amazing thing about Jesus is he's both a priest and a king. And so Peter, that's new. That's new. You don't see that in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the high priesthood and the priest order of, of Levi, they were the priests that were the mediators between God. But now that Jesus' work is finished and completed, 24-7 access to God, we are the priests serving our king. So he's taking language out of the Old Testament, but he's giving this new spin to it. I'm not sure I should use the word spin, but this new, this new importance to it that the priesthood is direct access to God because of the finished work of Christ as we serve our king. We're priests of Jesus. We're priests of the royal uh, uh, king. And then a holy nation. That phrase, holy nation, refers to our position. We're holy and righteous. That's our position. That's who we are. That's part of our identity. And then he concludes, a people of his own, the his, that pronoun referring to God, his own possession. We belong to God. We've been bought with a price. We learned that earlier in the chapter 1. That price is the shed blood of Christ. And we now belong to God. And those relationships, the, the, that relationship is described multiple ways in the Bible. But especially Heavenly Father to child, in the family of God. I mean, all of those wonderful figurative expressions that define our new identity. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood that serves our king. We're a holy nation. It's our, 
our, our position of being righteous and holy in his eyes because of Christ. And we belong to him. You must understand, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you no longer are on your own. You belong to God. You're his possession. And another reference in the New Testament speaks of us being the inheritance of Christ. What the Father, I mean, it's just magnificent ideas. Each one of them, it, it, it defines the richness of our relationship with the living God because of Jesus. And so the point of verse 9 is you're to leave this class today really excited, really energized, because we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but it's, you're supposed to. You're supposed to just, wow, this is who I am. This is my identity. When God looks at me, this is what he sees. I'm part of the chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I serve the king. I belong to him. And those, uh, these magnificent thoughts, which just almost, they almost defy our imagination. It gets us back to what is a very, very important proposition to my wife. To see yourself the way God sees you. Not how others see you, not how you see yourself, but how God sees you. And that's what Peter is driving at here in, in, in in uh, one way. It's, it's, a, it's a magnificent verse. Any questions about those four phrases? Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy, a people of own possession. Four key phrases that define us, our identity. But would you notice the second half, though, of verse 9? There's an overarching purpose of all this. And the I, I'm sure all of your translations have this. I, I'm using ESV. That, it's introducing a purpose clause. God declares it, that we are a holy nation, chosen people, all that stuff for a purpose. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him. Let's stop there before we look at the rest of the clause. Excellencies of him. Who's the him? Of, of the Lord, of what he's done. The excellencies. It's a great... It's a great way to translate that. So, what does that mean, proclaim? Tell, tell people. Yeah, tell people. Mm -hmm. Did you ever, when, when I was a, a little boy and I went to Sunday school class as a real young, we used to sing, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, do, you ever, do you remember singing mm -hmm. that? Hiding under a bushel? No. And the kids would yell no, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> So it's, it's a funny little silly childlike way of saying what he's saying here. Because of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us, we need to get the word out. And the word proclaim there, we get our word preaching from that. We're not to hide this. We're to proclaim this. And he puts it in such a way it follows with the language of the royal priesthood, etc. The excellencies. This is what our king has done for us proclaim his excellencies and then he nails it because he has transferred your citizenship he has transferred your citizenship from one kingdom to another kingdom you used to be part of the kingdom of darkness now you're a part of the kingdom of light now they're metaphors you know, figures of speech that's not hard to 
figure them out, I don't, I don't think. And so it's, it's almost like, it's not that I'm coercing you to proclaim it, but you want to proclaim it. This is what he's done. He's taken you from darkness to light. And the New Testament, and really the Old Testament too, but the New Testament really stresses that the rebellious kingdom led by Satan, of which you and I are members until we respond to Christ, is the kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom of deceit, of duplicity, of hiding the truth, of distorting the truth, of, of deception at the highest order to convince you that darkness is really light, when in reality, darkness is darkness. And then you come to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we've been transferred from citizenship in the kingdom of darkness to the citizenship of his dear son. And all of that is in back of that little phrase, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because in Christ's kingdom of light, he doesn't hide the truth. He doesn't distort it. He doesn't deceive. He's not duplicitous. Can I put it this way? He tells it like it is. He doesn't hide anything from you. And again, I to me that is that is is so refreshing because the world system that stands opposed to God is into totally deceiving deceiving you where what you think is light is really darkness. All right. I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah, Woody. Yeah. I'm going back. Some of this is a little tough for me. I'm going back to the, the introduction where it says, you know, Peter was writing this letter to encourage the believers to endure the intense persecution that was prevalent in their area and prepare the real readers for difficult times ahead of them. Isn't what he's really doing is trying to encourage That's them right. and remind them who they are That's right. and the decisions that they've made That's right. and, and remind them of what's ahead for them. Exactly. Now, you're, you're, you're spot on, Woody. You're right on, absolutely. And I mean, it's that's why even for you and me today, although we're not undergoing statewide persecution like the early church was, at the same time, life is hard, life is tough, there are inexplicable things happening, and Peter is doing the same thing that benefits, uh, the benefit of the early church can benefit you, reminding us of who we are, reminding us of our identity, reminding us of the change that has occurred in our life. And um, I, I think you will agree with this. Your mind has to be focusing on and meditating on and reminding yourself of these things day in, day out, hour after hour, because your emotions, your emotions are constantly driving that wedge between the truth of who you are and the circumstances which seem to indicate this isn't this is an inaccurate description of who I am. Because we still live in a fallen, broken world where accidents happen, trauma happens, sad things happen, difficult things happen, we can't explain. And that's why Matt likes to say it. 
we don't live our lives based on explanations. We live our lives based on promises. In a sense, this is the promise. This is who you are. I promise you this. And it's to remember who we are in Christ. And I, you, I know you remember I said this. Our, our lives are like this. This is life. The, the Christian's life isn't this. Our life is just that as we're going through the ups and downs of life, the hope and faith and trust that, that characterizes our life because of who we are in Christ makes the valleys a little less deep and the mountaintop a little, a little higher. So this is a letter to us as it was to them. Correct. 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 Okay? I thought I heard somebody want to interject something. All right. And then... Again, just a reminder, verse 10 is kind of a summary reminder. Without all of the, the phraseology of the royal priesthood, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Think about that. Once you are not a people, what was your identity? You didn't have an identity. Who are you? I'm outside of God's grace. Who are you? But you respond to the message, you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you receive mercy. He's just reminding, he's reminding his, his readers that all of this that he's been talking about is a result of what God has chosen to do to extend grace and mercy to us. As you know, I've said many times that it's on the table. Everything's been done, but we've got to pick it up. If we don't pick it up, everything that's being discussed here Will not apply. Will not apply to us. All right, mm-hmm. yeah, Woody. You were right when you said this, some of this is really hard to process. I mean, this is deep. This is deep doctrine, and I don't think you know, that's a new truth to you. But this really is. This is helpful. I'm sure if you've read all the rest of the books. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But your 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 observation was right on. You you nailed it. You really did. All right. Um, as we move into verse eleven, we actually, uh, at least the way I've outlined it on page six of your little packet, we're actually moving into the a second major division of the book. Um. I, I remember when I was doing this uh, a number of years ago when I was trying to put together how to outline this, I struggled with the word to use. And so I chose the word submission. The Christian submission in God's honor. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit with you about why I chose that word. Um, I would contend that the life of the disciple of Jesus, the life of the believer, the life of the one who's walking with God, is a life of submission. So let's just think about that for a minute. Do you understand what I mean by a life of submission? You submit to the dependence that God demands of you because if you're not dependent on God then you're 
going on the other side of the track and you're disobeying God. And you're trying to live uh, your life in dependence on yourself and all of your resources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to, to what and to whom do we submit? Obviously, in, the, in effect, to God, first and foremost. May I, may I interject oh, please, yeah. 45 years in AA, okay? And one of the steps is, one of the prayers is, God, I offer myself to you to do with me as you will. You know, and that's, that's you know, that's it. That's, that's a, another way of defining submission. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.24, we are to submit to one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says we are to submit to the elders of our church. In Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, it says we are to submit to the authorities of government. In the marriage relationship, there is a submission. So, I chose that because what Peter is doing here in these verses that follow is he is characterizing in, in facet after facet after facet of our lives what submission looks like. Why is that such an unpopular idea? We like independence. We like independence. We like autonomy. I don't want to be dependent on you, Jim. I don't want to mutually be, I don't want to do that. I'm the captain of my own ship. I mean, all of those ideas run counter to everything the Bible teaches us. Now, let's take this to another level. In what way did Jesus Christ model submission for us? Submitted to the Father. He submits to the Father's will. Even remember in Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he's agonizing over what he's facing and it's it, to paraphrase it father isn't there a plan b here <laughs> but it, knowing there isn't your will not my will and so i mean there is that that sense but are there other ways in which you can see that submissive spirit in jesus he submitted well to the cross but you're saying i'm just saying the same thing actually no, but not the cross, submitting to the cross. But are there other? He cleaned the apostles' feet. Okay, his lifestyle, and how he 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 lived it, and and you're correct in John 13, that magnificent, astonishing act of Jesus, the Lord of the universe, washing the feet of his disciples. That's submission. That's a submissive spirit. And that's a servant spirit, and that's what Jesus says to them. What I just did, I want you to do it. This models how I want you to live. And so it's, this isn't foreign to us as an idea, mm-hmm. but it's an idea we constantly push back. I don't want to do this. And so he, I broke it that way in, in the outline. Mm-hmm. These various areas where the submissive spirit is what the Lord wants to see. And in every one of these areas, that's counter to what the human race wants to do. He submitted to his earthly parents. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I do not want to do it. And, you know, it's, I watched this with my, my grandson these last couple of weeks. I mean, you know, he, for the most part, he's, you know, a typical kid. But at the same time, you know, he's just always testing Jonathan and, and Irene, his parents. 
is this still wrong? <laughs> is, is, is this still the line? Is this, is this still, I'm not supposed to cross over this? And, you know, so you're just constantly <laughs> reminding George. And then when, when it was really f- funny, I'm sure you have grandchildren have, have experience. When Jonathan and Irene left, then George tests me and Peggy. <laughs> of course. Okay, I know what mom and dad said, and what do you guys say? What pops and Graham say? That's yeah. what he calls us. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just really, it's just, you know, and I don't have any struggle with the idea that my little grandson is a sinner. <laughs> Isn't that an awful thing to say about little George? No. So this, with those introductory comments, this is probably what we'll be able to do only for the rest of our time. But verse 11 we kind of understand he's moving to another dimension of the letter. Beloved, it's kind of a structural marker. Beloved, I want to build on this now. Who you are, we've talked about it. Now, here is your duty and obligation to God and to one another. I urge you, now notice how he puts it, as sojourners and exiles. Let's stop there before we move on to the rest of the verse. Why does he refer to this chosen race, this royal priest, this holy nation, the church, the new order of things? Why does he use terms like sojourn and exile? Go ahead. They stand up. They want to stand up for the right. They're not living the way. Okay. Okay. But but they're not accepted either. Interesting, my translation reads sojourners and pilgrims. Pilgrims, yeah. That just brings a little new dimension to that. A sojourner, that's, we don't use that word very much in, in 2017, so maybe it's not as But a sojourner, what comes to mind when you hear the word sojourner? Traveler. Traveler. Traveling through. You're, you're moving through something. You're, you're not at your permanent place. So in in terms of the eternal dimension of things, in what sense are we a sojourner? It, this this isn't the permanent part. This isn't our destiny. Hmm. Isn't, it, isn't it also true though that I mean, they were part of the royal family and the priesthood, but they're living in a world that where they are truly aliens. Exactly. Exactly. Just like we are. Exactly. The person without Christ doesn't see themselves that way, a sojourner. They said, this is all there is. This is, why it's, this is the most important thing. And, you know, I reflect on that with my dad. You know, he was so sick and, and all of that. You know, all the things that he had done materially, everything didn't matter. Now, that's not, that's not a, I mean, dad, dad worked hard. He taught me a lot, and I owe him a lot. But in ter- at the end of life, you know, it really didn't matter what his bank account looked like. It really didn't matter what his house looked like. The only thing that mattered was when he takes his last breath, where will he be? And that's why the New Testament encourages us to, can I put it this way, travel light through this life. So does that mean you should, you should not own a house? No, that's not what it means. That's not, that's not the point. But remember... This really isn't your home. My dad's home now because he's with Jesus. 
and his eternity has begun. Mine hasn't, yours hasn't. But it's that, that perspective that only eternity brings. We're sojourners. We're passing through. And so, as, as uh, I think it was Rob said, he, your translation says exile that has pilgrims. And I, I know what the editors were doing as they struggled with that. Pilgrims, it's that, pilgrim is almost, almost a synonym for sojourner. But exile strengthens, strengthens the sense. You are not where you will be for eternity. You're exiled from what is real reality. And they're physically not in the promised land. Exactly. Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's a reminder, and I think, you know, my kids who are still pretty young, and certainly George, my grandson, they don't think of life like that. They're still planning their life. They got all their plans and all the things laid out. You know, Jonathan, he's 32. Jonathan, you're a sojourner. You're an exile. Okay, I know that, Dad. I believe the Lord and all that. But, you know, that's just, that doesn't right. But for me, that has a lot deeper meaning than it used to. And for my dad, that is all that he thought about those last months of his life. I just want to go home. And so it's a reminder of what is the foundational truth of our identity. We belong to God, and he made a promise of eternal life to each one of us. So this life is just the front door to what is real life, that is eternal life with him. So it's proper to use these terms like sojourner and exile, okay? So because of who we are and because of we're sojourners, exiles, what do we do? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Right out of the chute, because of who you are, it should affect how you live. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, um, they did give me an eraser. I, I hope we can do this in the time that remains. But, um, man, Andrew, this is a lovely board. Wow. I just want to keep erasing because it's so much fun. <laughs> no, but uh, the term flesh is used both in Peter's writings and in Paul's writings. And it's sarx or sarkinos in, in Greek. It doesn't mean our flesh, our skin. And our, our, you know, our, that's not what it means. It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. So... What does it mean? It is that part of who we are that stands opposed to God. It's that which desires to fulfill our personal desires. And if I use the word lust, then you only think about sexual that it's a much, much broader term than that. And to where I'm focusing on my autonomy, not 
by dependence on the Lord. So I, uh, I wrote this real quickly, so you maybe can't read it. But when, when the New Testament uses the word flesh, it doesn't mean our bodies, our flesh and blood, our, our skin and our blood and all that. It's a principle that focuses on that which is still a part of us that's in defiance of God. That seeks autonomy, not dependence. And so Peter is saying, because of who you are and because of, of, of all that God has promised to you, the fundamental obligation you have is to begin to get victory over this. Because the Bible identifies three enemies of the believer. One is Satan, or the devil. Two is the flesh, and three is the world. That, that world system over which Satan rules and stands opposed to God and everything. There are three enemies. One, two, three. Peter's choosing to focus just on this one right now. And because the term to abstain, is that a suggestion? Or is that a command? It's a command. You must have an intentionality about getting rid of the old habits and old patterns of the flesh. Because he says of those, they war against your soul. Now, what you need to do, if you're taking notes or whatever, is write down Galatians chapter 5. Because in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about this war between the flesh and the spirit. And he describes all of the evidences in your life of the flesh winning. And then in verse 22 and 23, he describes the nine qualities of the evidence of the spirit working in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience. And as what Peter and Paul, they're doing exactly the same thing here. Peter, in this little phrase, war against your soul, is doing exactly what Paul does in a whole chapter, chapter 5 of Galatians. I one time heard an old Baptist preacher put it this way. And it isn't great theology, but it's, it's memorable, so I'll use it. <clears throat> Inside of us, there's a war going on between the flesh and between the spirit. One's a black dog and one's a white dog. Which one wins? The one you feed. <laughs> you have to think about it. You know, maybe you didn't get it. But in other words, you know, there is the reality of the struggle. Every day we face it. Am I going to feed the flesh or am I going to feed the spirit? It's that you, you must make that decision. And I like to put it, as I mentioned a moment ago, the old habits and patterns of our life, which, which were, I'm seeking autonomy, not dependence. I'm seeking my own personal desires and loss, not what you want, Lord. And if we feed that, that's what we will see evidenced in our life. And I know some of you heard me talk about this. That's why I think we, each one of us, because I, I can't put a template over your life, say, you do this, 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 and this. But you and I each have to have a strategy for, the whole, for holiness in our life. We, we need to do that. 
you understand yourself better than I understand you. I mean, I can sit down and talk to you in some pastoral counseling because uh, I'm not a therapist or anything. But for the most part, it's just what what are the things that I noticed about my life and the pattern and habit of my life that if I don't deal with this, that is this initial exposure, what's in my thought life, if I'm not dealing with that, then I just see myself constantly, constantly feeding the flesh, which is self-defeating. And so what Peter is appealing to here, and I've got to quit, but what Peter is appealing to here in verse 11 is have a strategy for holiness in your life. Don't feed the flesh because it's at war against your soul. Feed the spirit. I want to say a lot more about that next week. And I maybe I tried to jam that in here in, in the last minute or two. So I'll probably start with verse 11 again and comment on one or two additional things. I think I'm going to read from Galatians 5 as a part of that too. But we're now into, we're now into this so what section of, of 1 Peter. The first part has been a wonderful doctrine and reminders of who we are in Christ. Now, so what? How does this affect how I live? And that's what he's getting into now. This gets a little more uncomfortable. That was supposed to be funny, but nobody <laughs> laughed. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me pray. I'm sorry I kept you a little longer here. Lord, thank you for this uh, wondrous reminder through Peter of who we are because of Jesus. And we picked up that gift from the table. We're now your child. We're part of your family. We're the part of the, 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 the chosen royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of your own possession. This is our new identity. This is who we are. And that brings about the change and transformation. And Peter is beginning that long discussion of what a life of submission to you really looks like. I pray for these men. Thank you for each one of them. It's great to be back in our, our class each week now. And pray your watch, care, and blessing and enablement in their lives. We all are in process. None of us has reached the goal. We're all in process. But we thank you, dear Lord, for your patience, your love, your long-suffering, and your compassion that you shower upon each one of us. We are trophies of your grace because we've put our faith in Christ. Help us to learn each day just a little bit more of what a life of dependence on you really looks like because that is the path of freedom. That is the path of joy and fulfillment. May we represent you well the rest of this day, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 See you next week.